Good evening, everyone. Good evening, welcome. Uh, my name is David Hempton. I'm Dean of the Harvard Divinity School. And I'm delighted to welcome uh, all of you to our first Religious Literacy in the Profession Symposium, this time on the theme of journalism. It's a special pleasure to welcome our distinguished speakers over the next uh, few days, especially this evening, uh, Laurie Goodstein from the New York Times, um, who will give our keynote address shortly uh, after this Irish accent stops, and my former colleague, uh, Professor uh, Stephen Prothero from across the river in Boston University. Welcome, Steve. Um, we're grateful to Steve and to BU for their collegial work with HDS on this conference and others to come. We appreciate this partnership very much. It's a way of crossing the Charles before it even freezes, um, <laughs> as it does. Uh, let me especially mention um, our member of the HDS Dean's Council, Bruce McEver, who is helping to fund the Religious Literacy and the Professions Initiative here at the Divinity School and to whom we owe this marvelous conference um, and opportunity to engage with each other today and tomorrow. Um, uh, Bruce is a tireless advocate for religious literacy in a world that sorely needs it, and we're very grateful to you, Bruce. Um, my thanks also go to Diane Moore, the director of the Religious Literacy Project here at HDS, and her staff who have um, uh, conceived and organized this very special event and worked very hard to bring it off. As you will probably know, um, Thomas Jefferson, uh, author of the Declaration of Independence and third president of the United States, I, I know you know that, um, uh, wrote to Edward Carrington in 1787 stating, were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. Um, now, there's a prescient comment, if ever there was one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. As you know very well nowadays, uh, the role of journalists is changing and adapting to new social media. And at the same time, truth-seeking truth and deeply informed journalism is more important than ever in shaping our discourse and informing the general public, both here in the United States and the wider world. An informed discourse requires that all parties participating in it are educated and knowledgeable about the subject matter, in this case with religion broadly conceived. So my hope for this conference at HDS is to convene a forum where distinguished scholars of religion and distinguished journalists can meet in open discourse and free discussion in a collegial exchange of views to help educate one another and to leave here at the end of the conference with an enhanced understanding about the subject of religion and journalism. So now it's my pleasure to introduce my colleague and good friend, Diane Moore. Diane is the director of the Religious Literacy Project, a senior lecturer in religious studies and education, and a senior scholar at the Center for the Study of World Religions across the street. She focuses her research and teaching and writing on enhancing the public understanding of religion through education from the lens of critical theory. She is currently serving as the principal investigator for two initiatives, the Religious Literacy in the Profession Symposium Series, which is why we're here tonight, and the Religious Literacy and Humanitarian Action Research Project in partnership with Oxfam and funded by the Luce Foundation. She's also serving on a task force at the US State Department in the Office of Religion and Global Affairs to enhance training about religion for foreign service officers and other State Department personnel. 
Dan was also the lead scholar for the six-module massive open online course, MOOC, through HarvardX, entitled World Religions Through Their Scriptures, which so far has attracted over 130,000 followers uh, from over 150 countries, which is more even than our annual intake of students. Um, <laughs> the first version of this online course was launched in 2016, and the second version will be launched in 2017, with an, ad, an added module on Sikhism. This course has seriously destabilized the notion that MOOCs will only succeed within the fields of science and technology, or that religion is yesterday's news. Um, it's been an astonishingly successful project. More than anyone at HDS, Dan helps prevent many scholars like me um, from wasting away in our proverbial ivory towers, which is a sometimes very desirable thing. Um, uh, so it's now my pleasure to hand the microphone over to Diane. So welcome, everyone. We're really delighted to have you with us, and we look forward to our conversation. Well, welcome, everybody. It's um, so exciting for this day to finally arrive, as many of you know who have been planning these sorts of events. It uh, takes a long time to get to this place and many, many, many people to be able to pull this off. I just want to highlight uh, Sarah Bin, Levy Brightman, and Lauren Kirby, who are the research associates and planners for this conference. Are you both here? They're right, right here. And can we please give them a... We would not be here without them in so many ways. I want to welcome all of you who are here with us in the audience. I want to welcome our online uh, guests. We're going to be live streaming this entire symposium, and we're grateful again to our IT department to help make that happen. I also want to give a special thanks to our invited panelists who are taking time out of a remarkably busy schedule, a day and a half, to be with us to engage these questions of this intersection of religious literacy and journalism. I, I can't imagine a, a more timely uh, uh, focus for us. We were planning this a long time ago. We have always known that questions of lack of understanding about religion have been significant, uh, and not only in the, in the professions we're addressing, but this is the work of the Religious Literacy Project itself, which is dedicated to, the, to enhance and promote the public understanding of religion. But we um, felt like we wanted to engage and organize this symposium again with the incredible support of Bruce McGever and with the collegiality of um, our wonderful colleague, Steve Prothero. When we were conceiving of this, we put together this A list of people thinking, okay, we're gonna try this and then we're gonna have to go to find a B list, which we didn't really even create. And miraculously, no kidding, our A list all said yes. So again, I can't thank those of you who are taking time out of your, your lives to be with us uh, to engage in these kinds of conversation again in an incredibly timely time. Let me just say a word about the entire symposium series. So again, it's uh, sponsored by the Religious Literacy Project, uh, and much of our work has been focused on working with educators. But we also realized that it was really critical to bring this conversation into other professionals who are engaging around these questions of religion in the field. So we focused on four. Journalism is our first one tonight. Uh, we're going to have another one on humanitarian action and with a focus on what does it mean for people in uh, what's often called the arena of humanitarian aid, but we're calling it humanitarian action, 
to be working with local people uh, on the ground in a variety of different places to strengthen their capacity to respond to uh, the variety of humanitarian concerns that, are, that have arisen. It's a very different kind of model. It's a shift in a model from the humanitarian aid, which is the kind of swooping down uh, into places to help um, it respond to crises. The, much of the humanitarian action movement now is moving in a different direction. So our focus in the January symposium will be on humanitarian action and religious literacy. We have then one in, in the uh, next fall, which will be focused on government, uh, questions about government with a special focus on refugee, immigration, and security questions. And then a final one in the spring of 2018 uh, on business. And so again, we're very excited. But the overarching themes of all of these is that there's a widespread lack of understanding about religion that spans the globe that is not uh, about specifically whether people know specific ideas about religion, but it's a concept of how to understand religion. Uh, and that, that there are consequences to that lack of understanding that are significant, and the ones we're most concerned about at the project and in this symposia series are the civic consequences of that lack of understanding, which is that it fuels prejudice and bigotry and hinders cooperative endeavors in local, national, and global arenas. And again, uh, the point around these symposia is to then bring together professionals in the field who are facing the kind of challenges of what it means to address questions about religion in a sophisticated way, that we have a lot to learn from them as, 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 uh, as academics, to think what are the challenges that people in all these professions, but journalism particularly, have to address in relationship to religion, and how, what can we learn as scholars about those kinds of challenges, and what might we be able to offer, and we hope something, uh, for from a scholarly perspective about a, a sophisticated understanding of religion that we can nuance. Now the journalists who are here with us tonight know this well. They are experts in religion, that's why they're here. So this is really a conversation to, to both identify best practices and then think about what does it mean to work together to enhance better understanding about religion through those best practices in the field. And so the key, I think, for us is that the, the aims we'd hoped for when Steve and David and Bruce and I were originally conceiving of what these, uh, this series would look like. We had many aims, but I wanted to say the most kind of overarching one, in the interest of time, is that, that I want to just say the overarching one, is that through this series we want to begin the process of building bridges between the academy and the professions in ways that will be mutually enhancing for us all. We in the, you, the academy have much to learn from journalists, for example, whose profession, profession is to accurately communicate complicated stories and ideas to a general audience. Um, we don't necessarily do that so well in the academy. We have a lot to learn about that. Uh, and we hope that we have something, again, useful to offer journalists around uh, the opportunity to think in different ways about what the complexities of religions reveal. So again, uh, I want to turn the microphone over now to my friend and colleague, Steve Prothero, again, really pivotal in the conception of this series and a wonderful consultant for us in not only naming ideas of people who might be with us, but also uh, himself a, a prolific writer and person who has himself really represented a, a wonderful model of what it means for academics to speak to a general audience, both in his many publications, which I will not review, you've got them in your, in your bio, uh, but also as a blogger and as a, a, a speaker in uh, many different uh, contexts around the world. He did a, pro a project with, on the, uh, with the Smithsonian 
Institute around these questions of a religion, religious literacy in American history. Um, and, and, and frankly, he was also, he was on The Daily Show. I mean, that's like so cool. <laughs> so uh, I've, I've, I just want to say how grateful I am to have had the chance to work with Steve as we conceive of this. And I'm going to turn the microphone over to him now that he'll talk, speak specifically about religious literacy and journalism and introduce Lori as our keynote. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, thank you, Diane and, and, and David and uh, and Bruce and the staff and all of you uh, for coming. It's nice to see a lot of uh, friendly faces out there. I don't feel as nervous as I usually do when I speak because so many of you are are friends. And it's lovely to have walked to uh, Harvard Divinity School. I haven't done this in many years, but I'm living living nearby uh, this year, so uh, it's great to be here. Almost uh, 20 years ago. Uh, the Rockefeller Foundation convened a group of 10 or so scholars in American religion to discuss what we might do to bring our academic expertise more out into the open. And together we fixated on the notion of religious literacy as something that we might be able to offer to the public understanding uh, of religion. And in my uh, 2007 book on religious literacy, I argued that religion matters, that Americans know uh, almost nothing about it, and that our collective Ignorance is a civic uh, problem, imperiling our democracy at home by, among other things, flooding the public space with uh, specious claims about Christianity, the Bible, and the world's religions, and also uh, posing a problem abroad by leaving us unprepared to understand what is still a furiously uh, religious world. And some have read my book um, as arguing piecemeal, uh, as arguing that uh, piecemeal knowledge about religion can be delivered in easy sound bites, but I don't believe that religious literacy can be reduced to just a bunch of facts. Like other forms uh, of literacy, religious literacy is a skill, and in this case, it's the ability, the capacity to engage in informed uh, public conversations about, uh, about religion. And this ability, in my view, requires knowledge about the world's religions, but also empathetic understanding and critical engagement and a comparative perspective. In the classroom, religious studies professors like myself try to teach this knowledge and these skills and sensibilities. Uh, but in many respects, religious literacy is better disseminated by the sorts of journalists we have gathered here today. Religious studies scholars like to complain about journalists and journalism. You may know this, the journalists in the room. Um, some refuse to talk to journalists because of their conviction that whatever they say in an interview will be contorted to fit a preconceived story. Others complain that journalists don't know anything about religion, and so they are going to be fated to get the story wrong. Back in my graduate school days here at Harvard, I remember telling Conrad Wright, a professor of uh, New England Unitarianism, uh, direct out of uh, central casting with his Boston Brahmin accent and his bow ties and his properly uh, prepared suits, that I was studying the beats as a spiritual movement. That's not history, that's journalism, he told me, and it was not meant as a compliment. <laughs> there are journalists, of course, who perpetuate stereotypes about religious groups and religious actors, and in so doing, contribute to religious ignorance. But religious journalists, religion journalists are, in my view, partners 
in this religious literacy enterprise. In recent decades, scholars have focused on lived religion, religion not as it appears in scripture or on the pages of authoritative uh, interpretations by great thinkers in the past or uh, by the pronouncements of popes or pastors, but as um, religion is lived by ordinary people in all its contradictions and uh, confusions. Good journalists do this work every day, calling our, our collective attention, for example, to the division between Catholic authorities and Catholic laity, or to the propensity of supposedly peace-loving Buddhists to wage war in Sri Lanka or Myanmar. They remind us, as Jeff Charlotte has said, that just about every story is a religion story, or can be, if you know where to look. And they do so in styles, as David suggested, far more accessible in many cases than the prose of many academics. This important work is threatened nowadays on two fronts, one technological and economic, and the other political. One of the great challenges of journalists today is simply to survive in an era in which everything seems to be migrating online and onto social media when so many are willing to write for free and when anyone with a smartphone who signs up for a Twitter account is instantly deputized as a citizen journalist. How to do this work when so many of the magazines and newspapers who used to fund it are shutting down? A second challenge of journalism today is political and cultural, the rise of the era of truthiness. This is a challenge not only to journalists, but also to professors, two professional classes whose calling card, in the past at least, has been their fidelity to ferreting out the truth. In All the President's Men and Spotlight, movies about Watergate and the sex scandal, in Boston's Catholic Church, politicians and priests cover things up. Journalists bring things out into the open. After they reveal the truth, the public accepts it, lauds the truth bringers even as prophets of a sort. Here in the university, what is to become of those of us who have devoted our professional lives to research and writing in what is shaping up as a post-truth era in which Trumpism and postmodernism seem to be converging. Colbert was on to this with his truthiness meme, but the premise of the Colbert rapport was that he was going to speak truth to the truthy and that his audience was going to choose the truth. Today, strong men in Turkey, India, and the Philippines are actively undermining the freedom of the press. Erdogan in Turkey is arresting journalists by the hundreds. In the United States, the First Amendment is under fire by a populist president-elect who regularly tweets about the crimes and misdemeanors of the New York Times. We also look to be entering an era in which the federal government, rather than a guarantor of First Amendment freedoms, now seems poised not only not to protect, but also to attack freedom of speech and freedom of the press and to mete out religious liberty in huge bowls to Christians and in coffee spoons or not at all to religious minorities. All this is to say that academic research on religion and journalistic writing about religion are more vital than ever and that this is an important moment for us to work together, not only to understand religion and the religions, but also to defend the constitutional freedoms on which our two professions depend. I'm eager to hear tonight and tomorrow from this very 
um, important and talented group of journalists and scholars of journalism. What is religious literacy? How is it being advanced or retarded in the journalistic profession? What do journalists need to know about the world's religions in order to do their jobs? How can academics help them in this important work? More specifically, I'm eager to hear about the relationship between journalism and religious understanding here and now in an era in which the federal government is poised, as I said, not to protect our freedoms, but seemingly to undermine them and to deliberately confuse Christian liberty with religious liberty. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker for this evening, Lori Goodstein, who I just had the pleasure of meeting. Lori is an award-winning journalist who has been writing about religion for over 20 years, which is to say since Hillary Clinton hosted the first Eid celebration in the White House, since George Bush established his Office of Faith-Based Initiatives, since 9-11 and the rise of the New Atheism, since President Barack Hussein Obama described the United States in his first inauguration as a nation of Christians and Muslims, Jews and Hindus and non-believers. Lori began working as a journalist at the Washington Post in 1989 after earning her BA from UC Berkeley and her MA from Columbia <coughs> School of Journalism. She then took a major step backward in her career in 1997 by moving to a newspaper that the president-elect recently described as one of the worst newspapers with really, really bad people. <laughs> I refer, of course, to the New York Times. Over nearly two decades at this failing paper, she has taken a major role in writing about the sexual abuse scandal in the American Catholic Church. And like everyone else in this room, she has attempted to crack the koan, the koan, of recent American politics, why do evangelicals love Donald Trump? In 2004 and again in 2009, she won the AAR award for the best in-depth news reporting on religion. And last year, she won the Religion Newswriter Association Reward for Excellence in Religion Reporting. Americans are, by all measures, a deeply religious people, she wrote in a 2010 New York Times article about Pew's US um, religious knowledge survey but they are also deeply ignorant about religion. She is here today to start off our conversation about religious liter literacy and journalism, so please join me in welcoming Lori Goodstein. like to thank Diane for setting me up with this um, very difficult assignment, one of the hardest I've ever been given, um, and, uh, and Stephen for a wonderful introduction. Stephen has been a source of mine on the phone a number of times at some key junctures, and um, uh, it's really lovely to be introduced by you. Thank you. Um, I'd also like to thank Dean David Hempton for uh, for inviting me, and he and I were on a panel many years ago on evangelicals, and we haven't met since then. It's nice to see you again. And Bruce McEver for making this happen. Um, I also want to thank Sarah Bin and, uh, and Lauren, because without them, I would not even have this piece of paper to be reading off of. <laughs> so, thank you so much for your help. 
Uh, I'm glad that we're all here because we now have urgent work to do. Religious literacy has probably never been more important or more of a challenge. The ground has shifted. Fissures are cracking open all around us and the fault lines all seem to intersect. Race, class, gender, and underneath it all, like molten lava, religion. In a country celebrated as a model of multicultural diversity, we now see the emergence of nativists, racists, anti-Semites, Islamophobes, and immigrant bashers. They were probably there all along, but they have now lost any inhibition. People are getting hurt. Children are afraid. Mosques have been vandalized and set on fire. Swastikas have appeared on the walls of universities, churches, and synagogues. Even in New York City, where 8.5 million people of all colors and creeds ride the subway cheek to jowl every day, the number of hate crimes has doubled compared to last year in the month since the election. How will this change us? How far will it go? Which narrative will dominate? The America of hate crimes or the America of interfaith potlucks? They both exist. What we accomplish here in the next day could help us better tell the stories that will answer these questions. We will need everyone's experience and expertise and we will need to work together. I agree with Stephen on that. Scholars who think in centuries, journalists whose idea of history is the last papal conclave, and all of the scholars and journalists now suffering from attention deficit disorder induced by Twitter. You know who you are. <laughs> 11 days before the election, I had coffee with Russell Moore, who was visiting New York from Nashville, where he runs the public policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. Russell has become something of a media star this year. Some of you may know who that is. Um, because he's a conservative evangelical who very early on in the presidential campaign staked out the position that he would never vote for Donald Trump. He was one of the first to declare never Trump and he never budged. While so many of his evangelical colleagues got on the Trump train, Russell Moore said he could not support misogyny, race baiting, and hate directed at Muslims, immigrants, and refugees. He would not vote for Hillary Clinton either. He said he would write in a candidate. Over coffee in our cafeteria, or maybe it was juice, Russell said to me, you know, the people I hang out with think Donald Trump is going to win. They're pretty sure there's a lot of uncounted silent supporters out there, and those people are going to have their say in the voting booth. Russell told me that he personally expected Hillary Clinton would be president. He anticipated that evangelicals who had supported Mr. Trump would be out in the cold with a lot of soul searching to do. So mostly what we talked about was what stories there might be to cover after the election. After Russell left, I went to the national desk and I went to the editor who was planning the coverage of the election. I did not say, you know, we better be ready to cover a Trump victory because of all these silent supporters. I didn't say that because I had been watching that barometer on the homepage of the New York Times which told us that Hillary Clinton had an 87% chance of winning. Or maybe it was 91 on that particular day. A lot of you, seeing you nod, were probably watching that barometer too. So I proposed to the editor what I thought was an intriguing religion angle. Maybe after Trump is defeated, we should do a story on Christian conservatives who have to cope with what happened 
what, who have to cope with what happens when prophecy fails. When Prophecy Fails is the title of a classic study published in 1956 by researchers who documented how a small religious sect reacted when the apocalypse did not come on the day they had predicted. The prophecy failed, and yet the group quickly adjusted, tweaked its beliefs, and stayed intact, despite the cognitive dissonance. It's a fascinating study, and one that I've used as a reference in my coverage of religious believers over the years. I can't say that my editor loved the idea. It was a little too high concept when prophecy fails. As the election returns came in that night, I realized that the prophecy that failed was ours. We trusted the data and the polls and 538, the great guru, Nate Silver. We accepted the narrative of the number crunchers because what they do is scientific. They have the big picture. What journalists do is tell stories, real stories about real people and their lives. We use a methodology, we call it reporting, but these stories are often little cameos. They're anecdotal. So we give them less weight than we give to the data. In this election, we allowed the data to dominate the stories. The narrative we listened to was the narrative of the numbers. We are meeting at a time when there is a lot of genuine soul searching going on among journalists. Everyone is blaming the media for missing the anger and the alienation that carried Mr. Trump across the finish line. Everyone is asking, why weren't you elitist journalists from the coast? out there listening to the white working class in the heartland. So I want to ask these everyones, what were you reading in the run-up to the election? Did you read what the religion reporters were writing? We were out there in the heartland. We were listening and watching. We heard and saw the anxiety and despair and the near messianic hope that Mr. Trump offered. This is why I don't accept the conventional wisdom that the media elites ignored white, rural, and working class Americans. So I want to start first by looking back at some of the dispatches religion writers filed during the campaign and seeing what we can learn from them. Here are some of my personal favorites. Jeff Charlotte, is he here? Where is Jeff? We've never met. <laughs> Jeff Charlotte embedded himself in the crowds at Donald Trump rallies, and he said, hey, I've seen this before. What is drawing people to Trump is also what draws crowds to preachers of the prosperity gospel. Those are the preachers who tell believers, if you give me your money, God will bless you and make you rich too. Jeff went to a Trump rally in Youngstown and waited for hours for the prosperity candidate to arrive. This piece was published in the New York Times Magazine in April, and I love this passage so much, I'm going to read it to you. Unfortunately, I don't have it to project. At last it came, Trump's 757, heavy with gold. A group of women who had been sucking lollipops for the duration to keep their mouths wet. Nobody had water. They screamed, oh my God, oh my God. The heavy guy next to me said, that is a big plane. I gotta admit, that is one big plane. 
Jeff has a great eye and a great ear, but so do other reporters. What Jeff has that others don't is the ability to put what he's seeing in the context of American religious history and culture. Jeff teaches at Dartmouth and has done groundbreaking religion reporting on the religious right. In this piece, he compared Trumpism to the prosperity gospel because both are, quote, the American religion of winning. Throughout the campaign, political reporters and pundits puzzled over how evangelicals could possibly support a candidate who boasted of cheating on his wives and seemed to violate nearly all of the Ten Commandments. Sarah Pulliam Bailey answered the question, at least in part, with a piece in the Washington Post about the utter visceral disgust that evangelicals hold for Hillary Clinton. I saw this years ago when I worked for the Washington Post and, and Clintons were still in the White House. She wrote that in 2006, Jerry Falwell Sr. hoped aloud for a Clinton candidacy because, quote, nothing would energize my constituency like Hillary Clinton. Not even, he said, if Lucifer ran. The image of Hillary as Lucifer was absolutely real for some evangelicals I met. They may not have approved of Donald Trump, but someone had to stop Satan from occupying the White House. Of the two finalists for president, Hillary Clinton was far more steeped in her faith, more biblically literate, and more devout than Donald Trump. Dan Burke, who's here today, the religion editor at CNN, put together deeply reported religion profiles of each candidate. Yet it was Mr. Trump who galvanized religious leaders to join his campaign team and to turn out the vote for him. He knew he couldn't win without them. Elizabeth Diaz, who covers the intersection of politics and religion for Time Magazine, tapped into Trump's loyal pastors. Who knew that Trump began courting Paula White, a prominent Pentecostal preacher from Orlando, as far back as 2002? Paula White ended up helping to bring other pastors on board. Elizabeth Diaz took us backstage and showed us that Paul, Pastor Paula actually has a relationship with the Trump family. When Eric Trump's teleprompter broke down for his speech at the Republican National Convention, Paula White offered up an intercessory prayer, and voila, the, tempor the teleprompter was fixed. The alt-right is a movement that seemed to come out of nowhere for many of us. Sarah Posner had the foresight to focus on their spokesman and get to know him a little bit, apparently at a bar over mint juleps and Manhattans, and she found this is not your grandfather's KKK. This white nationalist, Richard Spencer, has a master's degree in humanities from the University of Chicago. Many of us are really confused right now about how these different movements on the right relate to one another. Does the alt-right work with the religious right? Are white supremacists Christian conservatives? This is why having someone like Sarah cover this group is so vital. Sarah found that Spencer reviles religious conservatives, but believes that they secretly share his white nationalist beliefs. And lastly, the national desk of the New York Times, my home, did a six-part series this year called Anxious in America. The pieces were so vivid, beautifully written and reported, and beautifully photographed as well, but most were about economic anxiety. I went to Iowa to talk with conservative Christians whose anxiety was cultural and spiritual. 
They were all pretty well-off professionals, but what struck me was how they no longer felt at home in their own country. All the changes had come too fast for them to absorb. Gay marriage, transgender bathrooms. I focused, I focused on Betty and Dick Odegaard, a couple who had run a wedding chapel, cafe, and art gallery inside a historic old church. They had quite a wonderful business and life until they refused to rent the chapel out to a gay couple. The gay couple sued and the Odegaards were ostracized in their town. They saw themselves as good people, good Christians, but they were being tarred as bigots and haters, and they resented it. The point of this exercise is not to claim that we religion writers are such enlightened beings that we alone among our colleagues foretold the coming of Donald Trump. We didn't. I've already shared with you how I didn't because I was watching that barometer, the one that apparently wasn't sufficiently calibrated to detect the 80,000 or so votes in three states that made all the difference. It is worth pointing out that the polls weren't so, weren't so far off. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by some 2.6 million and counting. The point is that there are many journalists who did have their ears to the ground, who left their offices and talked to people in diners and churches and nursing homes, and some of that work was done by religion reporters. But these stories were drowned out by the coverage of the horse race, or by the stories on political strategies, or most of all by the daily jaw dropper from Mr. Trump. We need more journalists who leave their desks and go out in the field and do the R word. That would be reporting, not regurgitating and aggregating. A super famous journalist I once worked with used to call it the R word. That's where I learned that. <laughs> because he found it so excruciating. <coughs> reporting may look glamorous, but it is really messy and demanding work. And it can be really hard, especially for people like me who are actually pretty shy. Reporting on religion can mean trying to get up the nerve to ask strangers intimate questions about their beliefs, their spiritual lives, their relationships, their sexuality, their addictions, their finances. That's why there's no substitute for being there, talking to people face to face, observing how they reacted when they caught sight of the size of that big gold 757. Reporting is hard, but I've found it is also full of joy and of transcendent moments when you suddenly see things in a way you never could before. I was born into a religion. Now my religion is reporting. But just when our nation needs an experienced, assertive, fired up force of state, journalism is going through an industry-wide convulsion that is depleting our ranks the journalists among us here are way too familiar with this, but for those who aren't, here's the big picture. I think everyone should know. In the last 25 years, newspapers have lost about half their newsroom employees. That's a lot of reporters, editors, researchers, and photographers. In the next 10 years, we're likely to lose another one-fourth of newspaper reporters and one-third of editors, according to Ken Doctor, who studies the economics of newsrooms. I'm focusing here on newspapers because that's where the vast majority of our religion beat reporters once worked. Most mid-sized and metropolitan daily newspapers used to have at least one religion reporter, 
often a veteran who really knew their stuff. When I started on the beat, the giants in religion writing worked at places like the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the Providence Journal. In its heyday only about 15 years ago, the Dallas Morning News had eight people on religion and a standalone section. But mid-sized papers are the ones that have downsized the most. And usually one of the first beats to go is the religion beat. The news business is in trouble because it's been hit by a double whammy. Newspapers once got their revenue from two main sources, print advertising and subscriptions. Now both are in free fall. Advertisers are moving online. And what they pay for online ads is far less than what they paid for print ads. Not only that, but most of those online advertising dollars don't go to the media outlets that produce the journalism. Two-thirds of online advertising revenue is being sucked up by Google and Facebook, when all they do is repost or link to our stories. Facebook is the biggest purveyor of what we've recently <coughs> taken to calling fake news. These are bogus articles and propaganda masquerading as the real thing, infecting a public that can no longer discern what is reliable. Some of this stuff is downright dangerous. Take a look at this one. It's a video, I'm sorry I can't show you the video, but it was posted recently on several websites. The headline tells you that the video shows Muslims attacking a Christmas tree in a shopping mall trying to tear it down. The text is ominous. It says, whenever Muslims move to Western nations, they try to change everything about the culture to conform to Sharia law. The text suggests that this Christmas tree was viciously attacked somewhere in Europe or in the United States. It's too bad you can't see the video, it's quite dramatic. Thankfully, there's Snopes.com, which unmasks fake journalism. Snopes found that this video was shot at a mall in Cairo. It shows revelers climbing up a Christmas tree, plucking off gifts placed in the tree, and tossing them down to children. This absurd video went viral with viewers all too willing to accept the notion that Muslims are out to destroy Christianity one Christmas tree at a time. These, there are frightening signs that we are entering an era where people cannot distinguish between real and fake journalism, between truth and lies, or they don't even care to. One of Mr. Trump's surrogates, Scott, Scotty Nell Hughes, just declared in an interview that there are no such things as facts. And she seemed quite delighted at this, by the way. So how to attack that problem is going to take a lot of collaboration between news organizations, social media platforms, journalists, educators, and citizens. We don't have any solution yet to fake news. But we can do something about the shoddy and misguided reporting on religion that is all too commonplace. First, you should know that much of what gets written about religion is not written by reporters on the religion beat. General assignment reporters, political reporters, education reporters, court reporters, all end up straying into religion territory, sometimes accurately and responsibly, but sometimes with regrettable results. I spent some time this fall asking clergy and experts on religion who are frequently interviewed by journalists what they have found are the most common misconceptions or blind spots. 
Muslims I talked to all said the same thing. Why must every story about Muslims be focused on terrorism and security? They asked, why doesn't the media cover any other dimension of our community? They also wanted to know why they keep hearing commentators in the media say over and over that Muslims never denounce terrorism committed in the name of Islam. That's just a lie. After every major terrorist attack anywhere in the world, my email inbox and that of many journalists is filled with outraged press releases from Muslim organizations condemning terrorism and expressing condolences for the victims. I think the denunciations don't get covered because to journalists they are so routine that it's not news anymore. But apparently the public hasn't gotten the message. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked when people hear I write about religion, why don't Muslims ever speak up? An American Muslim student at the University of Colorado Boulder, Hara Hashmi, she got so sick of hearing this that she recently put together a spreadsheet of every denunciation she could find. She came up with 712 pages worth of denunciations, 5,720 in all, and she called it the Worldwide Muslims Condemn List. It's a searchable Google Doc, and it's an amazing artifact of our times. When I asked Catholic priests and scholars about the common misconceptions journalists have about their faith, the list got really long. I'll abridge it for you here. They said journalists don't know the difference between an archbishop and a cardinal. They think we worship Mary. They conflate homosexuality, chastity, and pedophilia. They assume priests and nuns all live in monasteries. They think the pope controls what every bishop and priest says and does. And when some bishop somewhere pops off on some topic, it gets reported as if the Vatican has spoken. I talked to Charles Haynes, the director of the First Amendment Center at the museum in Washington, DC. He's one of the go-to guys for journalists on church state issues. He's who reporters call, a lot of them, when they want to know whether a zoning board can deny a building permit to a mosque, or whether high school students can start a Bible club at school. Charles told me that a shocking number of reporters he talks to aren't clear about what is in the First Amendment. He said they don't understand the ground rules of religious diversity in their communities. They have never heard of RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It's OK, you haven't, not to mention RELUPA. That was for the religion reporters in the room. <laughs> Look, questions about the limits of religious freedom and religious expression are complicated even for experienced reporters. Even the Supreme Court is having trouble finding that bright, clear line. Religious liberty issues are becoming regular flashpoints of conflict in our civic life. It just so happens that when I went to see Charles, he was initiating a training program on First Amendment and religious freedom issues. The trainings are for religious leaders, educators, and relevant for us here, students and journalism schools. But no matter their faith, the experts and clergy and religious folks I consulted in advance of this talk, they almost all had the same fundamental complaint when it came down to it. They told me that too often, secular journalists approach religious people with the assumption that if you're religious, you're probably not too smart. 
You can't be an intellectual and be religious. You must have checked your brain at the church or synagogue door. So perhaps what's needed, even more than religious literacy, is respect. That's what I think that religion beat reporters bring to the table, an understanding that begins with the assumption that people of faith are people of reason and intellect. This may be blasphemous to say here, but I actually think that the goal of arriving at some promised land of religious literacy is unattainable. The field is simply too big. I've been on this beat now for 23 years, and most of what I've learned is how much I don't know, and who to call to begin to try to find out. <coughs> Journalism is by its nature an on-the-job training program. That's what makes it so exhilarating and so terrifying. It's also why specialists in a field are always spotting errors in our stories, and not just stories about religion. So much of what we do is seat of the pants. Have mercy on us. <laughs> Last year, at the conclusion of a synod of bishops on the family and marriage issues over in Rome, I had 15 minutes before the first deadline to make sense of a document released by the Vatican, written only in Italian. <laughs> I don't read or speak Italian. It was a dense document, but what everyone wanted to know was, would it allow priests to give communion to Catholics who have divorced and remarried without having their first marriages annulled. The document was passed out in the Vatican newsroom. And on the right side of the room were the right-leaning Vatican correspondents who were exulting that the document was a victory for conservative Catholics. On the left side of the room were the left-leaning Vatican correspondents who were thrilled that the document was a win for progressives. I kid you not, this is really what happened. With the help of a colleague in our Rome Bureau who is fluent in Italian, Beta Povoleto, I ended up writing a story that played it down the middle. I'm still proud of that story. <laughs> By the way, Catholic conservatives and liberals are still arguing over how to interpret that document. Religion reporting is not for the faint of heart. So maybe instead of having as our goal religious literacy for journalists, we should aim instead for news organizations to have someone inside serving as a point person who has an interest in and respect for religion. It could be an editor or a reporter, it could be informal, it could be more than one person, say a religion team. It should not be someone who sees it as an opportunity to promote their own faith. That would be a disaster. There is no place in journalism for proselytizing. This person could be someone who can kick around ideas, who knows that the AP style book was just pretty recently redone and has entries on religion. And yes, who has some degree of religious literacy. So even if you are someone with no training or experience in covering religion, there are so many resources to turn to, it's an embarrassment of riches. I didn't want to leave you with the impression that with the beat reporters gone, that religion is not being reported on and written about in wonderful ways. So here are a few of my favorites. Religion Link is a free service that anticipates upcoming news events and provides story ideas and sources. 
It's produced by the Religion News Association, the oldest and biggest membership group for religion journalists. Many of the 400 to 500 members are freelancers. They put on a convention every year that is the place to go for ideas and networking, and also to use a religion term, fellowship. Very important. Religion News Service is the Associated Press for Religion News. It has the deepest bench of reporters anywhere covering and commenting on religion, uh, on religion news day in and day out. Uh, one senior writer, Adele Banks, is here today. And they have divided the religion beat up into subbeats, which I think is the ideal way to do it. There's a reporter on Catholics, a reporter on Jews, one on Protestants, and even one whose expertise is seculars and atheists. RNS has been around for 82 years and is now a nonprofit. The person who did more than anyone to make sure that Religion News Service survived is also here, Deborah Mason, a professor at Missouri School of Journalism. The Washington Post, my beloved alma mater, has acts of faith. Now the largest team, uh, well the Washington Post has the largest team of any major newspaper producing religion-related news. They are quick on the uptake and they are often driving the conversation. Michelle Borstein is their senior religion writer and she's here. Uh, she's at Harvard this year on a Neiman Fellowship. More from Washington Post, Acts of Faith. The Atlantic got a grant this year to expand international religion coverage. They do a lot of smart analytical writing on the intersection of religion, politics, gender, and class. Online, there has been ex an explosion of specialty religion and media sites. They're bursting with creative takes on the news, maybe because they're all housed in universities and draw on folks who have one foot in journalism and one in academia. I see you taking notes. This makes me so happy. <laughs> uh, there's Religion Dispatches, whose publisher, Diane Winston, is here from the University of Southern California's Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. You can see from these how right off of the news they are. I really like that. There's Religion and Politics housed at the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis. One more from their site. I think, do we have, do we have Max here? Max Mueller, no? Okay, I thought he was coming. Um, this one, The Revealer, published by the Center for Religion and Media at New York University. You may think I'm sprinkling in these shout outs because some of these people are in the room and I wanna make sure they're still awake. <laughs> you wouldn't be completely wrong. But I'm also hitting you with all this information because I'm told there are people watching this online. Some of them may be interested in reading good religion writing or in becoming religion reporters. There's a lot of terrific work already, already being done in this field, but you need to know where to find it. With some exceptions, it's no longer in your local newspaper. We have our work cut out for us. The religion front will be busy in the Trump era. If the new administration does proceed with deportations of undocumented immigrants, it will often be people of faith who come to their defense. 
The line drawn between church and state is going to be tested, no doubt. Perhaps it will be tested by the Secretary of Education, who believes in shifting government funding to private and religious schools. The current appointee for National Security Advisor, General Michael Flynn, sees Islam as a political ideology masquerading as a religion. Those are his words. Are we headed for that clash of civilizations that the last two presidents said they were trying to avoid? If voting rights are trashed and poverty programs are cut and the Affordable Care Act disappears, how will churches and houses of worship respond? Their food banks and soup kitchens and homeless shelters are already stretched way too thin. In sum, the American religion of winning produces a lot of losers. I covered a prosperity gospel convention in Texas after the economy crashed in 2009, and I will never forget it. 9,000 people inside the Fort Worth Convention Center, five days of preaching and Bible study and altar calls. In the bleachers, I met a husband and wife, both truckers, making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for lunch on a Bible. They were in debt on their credit card to the tune of $102,000. But they had donated $3,800 to Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, husband and wife prosperity gospel preachers. The Copelands had been preaching, telling their followers that they really needed to buy a bigger airplane and they needed better television equipment. The truckers believed that the Copelands would pray, especially for them, Pray for God to bless them. They had donated enough money to qualify as what the Copelands referred to as partners. The truckers said it seemed to work for them once before. Copelands had prayed for them, and they'd had good luck with the trucking route. They did not see themselves as marks. They saw themselves as blessed. I couldn't judge these people. I could see the logic. They had thought it through. But I was outraged at the preachers flaunting their diamond rings and boasting about their private planes while the truckers made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on their Bible. These preachers put their family members on the payroll and on their toothless boards of directors. They avoid paying taxes on their properties by declaring that the McMansions they live in are rectories. For journalists to have respect for religion, does not mean letting off the hook people who deceive and abuse others in the name of religion. I had help on that story, significant help, from a religion scholar, Jonathan Walton, who some of you may know because he's now teaching here at Harvard. He was then at the University of California, Riverside. He volunteered to fly down to Fort Worth to meet me at the convention. He had some research to do and it worked out for him as well. I remember standing with him near a hot dog stand inside the convention center where no one was buying hot dogs because they had brought their own lunches to save money. Professor Walton called the prosperity preachers spiritual pickpockets. It was the perfect phrase. It was how I felt, but I couldn't be the one to say it. So to the professors, when journalists call, please pick up <laughs> we depend on your expertise. As journalists, we throw out our nets and pull in raw material.
Together, we can identify the wriggling catch. Thank you very much. to wake up <laughs> and, um, and uh, I'm happy to take some questions um, as long as they aren't too much about how Donald Trump relates to the New York Times. I would like to uh, amend the record that um, he came for an interview recently um, and it was a very civil session. It was actually a, a real interview and at the end of it he declared the New York Times a national jewel. So, he's changed his mind. <laughs> we'll see for how long. Was that on his Twitter feed? Uh, no, he didn't tweet that. He said it, and we quoted it. It's on tape. <laughs> Hi, good evening. My name is Mario Caterfetch, and I work for Viacom, and I'm enrolled in Dr. Moore's class three times now. Um, do you believe that um, journalism can cross uh, the education that journalism can bring to the audience, the way you guys are bringing it, uh, the religious literacy portion of it, it can cross to the edutainers like us in Viacom, and a way, because we're not journalists, we create content uh, that goes to the masses mm -hmm. uh, through, whether it's TV shows or TV series or short documentaries. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that there is a way to cross the path from journalism to edutainment? Well, I don't know about crossing, but I think that entertainment has a role to play in um, both, I, would, I would, don't know that I would call it religious literacy, but religious uh, familiarity, kind of introducing people to um, you know, people in faith that they didn't know before. I know that um, Muslims, for instance, are working really hard uh, in Hollywood to try to get programming that uh, shows Muslim, just you know, Muslim families. And Canada had uh, a series called Little House, Little Mosque on the Prairie, right? Little Mosque on the Prairie. Um, and there's some work being done. Certainly, Muslim comedians are very active, uh, trying to get out there and talk about their lives in a way that's accessible to people. Um, if you think about the trajectory with um, gay people in our country, um, and look at how you know, people had no understanding about gay people's lives, no, um, you know, no affinity for gay people until, what was it, Will and Grace? Was that the, one, was that the breakthrough? Um, so I know that you know, Muslims themselves are very aware of that, looking at that as a model. Um, but in terms of religious literacy, I mean, I'm sure there are things can be, that can be done. There's so many ways that, you know, entertainment speaks louder than, than journalism, frankly. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Sorry. Thank you. Thank Where you. Where the um, microphone lands. My name is Kit McKeon, and I am also a former student of Diane Moore's. I think a number of us are here because of Dr. Moore. Um, I come, I grew up in a very conservative Christian town, mm -hmm. Wheaton, mm -hmm. Illinois. Um, not sure if you've heard of it, but it's... What's the name of it? Wheaton, Illinois. Oh, Wheaton, sure. Yeah, yeah, Sorry. Wheaton College, Billy Graham. And I grew up as a Catholic, so Pope John Paul II was the Antichrist. I mean, and I could, I could tell you more and more stories that they honestly believe. Well, I grew up with a, with a good friend of mine who was evangelical, fundamentalist Christian, 
and and a, you know I don't want to say she bought into it, but she was raised with all of those very solid notions, particularly on, on the homosexuality vein. And she said something interesting um, the other day just on Facebook, and she said, you know, I grew up in this evangelical community, and I believed all these things, and then it happened to me. Her daughter came out as a lesbian, and she said, I couldn't love my daughter anymore. And, she, and that, that made her rethink and, and revisit all of the, these evangelical and fundamentalist Christian um, views that she was raised with. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was an interesting point, because I wonder now, uh, like you were saying about the will and grace thing and about how, how, how homosexuality, the Ellen Show, all these things are on the table now. And I wonder if more, if you're finding more evangelicals who, who you know, who if it happens to them, they go, wait a minute, and they start to question these things. Um, so I don't know. I don't know yeah. if you've run into those kinds of um, Christians I, from... I think there's two things happening simultaneously that I see. Um, there is, um, because, you know, people are coming out and, um, you know, people are being forced to rethink assumptions about, about sexuality, um, that there is change in the evangelical world, in the conservative Catholic world, um, even in, you know, uh, ultra-Orthodox Judaism, I mean, everywhere. Um, but at the same time, there's a backlash um, because, you know, I think because there has been so much acceptance because um, of the, you know, Supreme Court um, legalizing same-sex marriage, um, there is, you know, the, the people who feel that they cannot accept that um, are, you know, organizing and, and they're, they're not giving up. Now, you know, I think to some extent there's, they see that uh, the majority of the country doesn't agree with them, but the stage we're at is they want to make sure that they aren't forced into, um, you know, into serving like the couple that I, that I showed you, um, or in any way endorsing or being seen to endorse same-sex marriage. And I think with the incoming administration, you're going to see um, those folks feeling like they have people in government who are, are watching out for them and who are going to <laughs> carve out rights for them. Um, that's going to be a big, big theme coming up. So. All right, where's the microphone? Okay, well. Hi. Uh, yeah, hi, Lori. Uh, Jeff Charlotte. Uh, thank you for that. Shout out to that story. And as you were saying that, I was thinking about something you, you then ended up saying. I can't say my editor was thrilled with the ideas. It was a little high concept and, and talking uh -huh. about the prophecy piece. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking that piece that you put on the screen there of mine emerged from a 12-year relationship with an editor, an excellent editor, Bill uh -huh. Wasik. Uh -huh. And I wonder what you can say about the role of editors as... I tend to think a little bit more falling down on the job mm. in terms of religion coverage. A 25, 26-year-old fresh religion reporter um, might not know something. They're counting on those editors to send them to the right scholar, to make them write that, ask the right questions. And I've come to see the editors as, as a little bit more where the weak link is. And I wonder mm -hmm. if that's your experience as well. Um, that is not my experience, because the way it works in, in my newsroom, because I'm, I'm a beat reporter, and this may be true for, for beat reporters, is 
My editors, you know, have not, I've had a, you know, rotating cast of editors. We don't have a religion editor per se. And so it's more collaborative. I'll go to them and I'll say, you know, here are the five stories that I'm thinking of doing. Which one, you know, do you think should be the priority? It's a little more bottom-up. A magazine may be, you know, may be a little different. But I think that you are onto something, which is that often um, it, it, it takes more than just a reporter with an ear or an interest for it. It takes an editor who's receptive. Um, and it takes also you know, higher-ups who want to you know, put resources into, into covering religion. And you know, one of the reasons I did all those, you know, I wanted to show you the work that is being done is because it's not being done everywhere because of editors. Um, it's being, you know, there, good work is being done in places where there are editors who, who get it. Um, and, you know, I think that that's why I was talking about maybe the idea of having somebody in a newsroom who's kind of the point person. Because you're right, a, a you know, very green reporter may not know who's the, you know, who's the professor to turn to. But they should at least know that, like, the Acad American Academy of Religion has, I mean, it used to be online, but this fantastic, um, you know, tool, you could go online and you can type in the most obscure um, topic, you know, um, and it will spit out for you who are the professors who have written papers on that topic. Um, you know, it will, so, you know, at least somebody in the newsroom ought to know about that resource. Maybe it's not that particular editor, that particular reporter, but somebody in the newsroom ought to be deputized to know that this thing exists. Um, that's a lot of what I do in my newsroom, by the way, is, you know, I just kind of, you know, tell people there's, there's this or that resource. Um, I think the, the bigger problem is with editors who, uh, who disdain religion. That certainly happens. And if you are an inexperienced reporter um, and trying to pitch a story or trying to pitch a particular angle or I really need this much space, it can, be, it can really be a big challenge if you're running up against a report, an editor who doesn't see it the way you do. But, you know, that is the job of the reporter to sell. The reporter has to sell the story. That's just part of the, the job we have. Because if you can't sell it to your editor, you certainly can't sell it to the readers either. And so learning how to do that, how to pitch and how to frame stories, that's a big part of what, what we have to do. Um, so anyway, I look, I think more um, awareness and more sensitivity about, you know, among journalists of all ranks would, would really help. I just, I don't know how to do it. You know, not everybody sees it as their calling, but somebody has to. Does that make sense? Yeah. Hi, thank you for your, for, for, for your talk. Um, I'm Eddie Glaude, and um, I'm really how interested, how are you? How are nice you? to meet you. Nice <laughs> to meet you too. I'm really interested in the structural reality that she laid out, and that is the shrinking sizes, mm. size of the newsroom, yeah. and the question of diversity, uh, and how it might suffer, as we've witnessed, um, uh, in some ways, the, 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 the draconian cuts that have evidenced themselves in the newsroom, and how that will impact the coverage of religion. Mm -hmm. And the, in the back of my head is the debate between Howard French and Tadahisi Coates a while mm -hmm. back about 
Mm. What does it mean to see the changes here in Coates and, and his response in terms of um, what he sees himself doing? Mm -hmm. And I say this also, so that's in the back, background, and I say this also in terms of, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this tomorrow, uh, the way in which the word evangelicals mm. is often used. Because right. it seems always to mark white, white. evangelicals. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. when in fact it's much more differentiated. Mm -hmm. um, and so what happens when that diversity, that diverse voice is not present? Right. Well, uh, there's so much to respond to there, but on, on your last point about evangelicals always being assumed to be white. I think actually that in the last camp, in the campaign that just happened, the election, we have the beginnings of a little bit of a breakthrough on that. I think that has been um, you know, as though it's a synonym, evangelical means white. It doesn't. Um, it's something like, I think, you know, 30, 40%, I think the numbers are a little mushy, of evangelicals in this country are black, Latino, Asian. And what happened in this, it, during the campaign, is that when often political writers started to write about the evangelical vote, and evangelicals are voting for Trump, and evangelicals, um, you know, all those black, Latino, uh, Asian evangelicals stood up and said, we're not, and we're evangelicals. And so that what you then began to see was the stories started to then be qualified. White evangelicals. And then when the numbers came down, 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump. That's how they did the numbers in the end. And, you know, I was very insistent in our newsroom that we always try to qualify that. So I think that um, because in this last election the, you could see the, uh, you know, the, the distinctions more, more clearly, um, you know, I'm hoping that that will, you know, it takes a while for something to like percolate all the way through and be accepted. Um, but I think there was awareness raised about you know, that not all evangelicals are white. Um, so you were also asking about diversity in the newsroom and you know, cuts and all that, how that affects Things. I mean, I, I don't know, I can't speak for other newsrooms, but I do know that, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post have always put a lot of premium on, uh, you know, diverse hiring. I think the success has been mixed. Um, we've even, you know, lost some, some really great staff members who've been, you know, wooed elsewhere, <laughs> um, who were among our most prominent um, you know, journalists who were people of color, and that's a big loss because everybody writes from their own perspective, and we need that perspective. I'll tell you what hasn't happened is an um, overt discussion of religious diversity. I don't know that that's doable, but I would like to see there be um, an awareness that there should also be diversity when you are hiring for faith, um, you know, it helps to have people in a newsroom who come from other faith backgrounds. Um, a friend of mine at Religion News Service was talking about a, a Muslim woman that, I, I don't know if she's still part of the, the mix there, but that she would be in on the conversation. She wasn't always writing the Muslim stories, but she would be, you know, helping talk about what she was hearing in her community and bringing, you know, bringing to the table these discussions of coverage um, and that's happened in our newsroom, by the way, with, with evangelicals, with Muslims. I see that happen. So, you know, I think that newsrooms need to do better and that, and that religion, 
reporting and reporting on religion and religious literacy would be higher if we had um, more diversity in the newsroom. Thanks so much for your remarks. Um, I appreciated your comment that there shouldn't be proselytizing in reporting, but I can only speak for myself personally that I've been doing a lot of soul searching since the election to mm -hmm. figure out how I should diversify the news sources that I'm reading mm -hmm. um, because I live in Cambridge, I grew up in a really liberal place, um, and my question for you is how do you struggle with the idea of writing from a place of a certain kind of value system. So, for example, the couple that said no to the gay couple who wanted to use their church, mm -hmm. it would be difficult for me to write about that if I were writing uh, and really separate out my values about what I think mm. is right. So mm -hmm. I, I would love to hear you talk about that as a religion reporter that what does it mean to be value neutral? Is it actually possible to be value neutral, particularly when writing around these, writing about these topics that are so hotly contested in religious mm -hmm. communities? Mm -hmm. Well, the job is, the way I see it, the job is to at least temporarily walk in their shoes and see the world through their eyes and then explain to others how they, how they see it. Um, and, uh, you know, I often have to put aside, it's, it's not how I, I see it. Um, most of the people I'm covering, you know, are not of the same faith I am, the same background I am. So I think if I couldn't do that, I wouldn't be able to do the job. And I think that's how most journalists work, I, you know, that, you you know it's you 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 have to suspend who you are. That's not you know we're not writing um, editorials. I couldn't write editorials actually. I wouldn't enjoy writing editorials. What I enjoy what I do, which is um, you know learning about how other people see and think. Um, it fascinates me, and then um, you know telling their stories. So. Um, you know, that's just, it's just the method, I guess. You know, method acting, this is method journalism. <laughs> my question would be like, we look at the New York Times and people say that's a, a, a liberal newspaper. Mm -hmm. um, how would you respond to that? Mm -hmm. I, look, I think that's fair because the people shaping the paper, making the editorial decisions, um, you know, weighting things, um, you know, they tend to be living in a, you know, uh, a world, they're, you know, the mindset is more progressive. Um, but I want to, you know, it's also extremely diverse. I, I really wouldn't want anybody to caricature, um, you know, the New York Times or any other mainstream religious outlet. I mean, I can't tell you how often I hear about uh, things going on in religious communities, and that includes evangelical, Catholic, um, Muslim, Buddhist, from my coworkers because they are of those faiths. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't want to caric caricature oh, the New York Times. Everybody's, you know, 
uh, walking around is a, is a flaming liberal. It's not really like that. There is a good bit of diversity there. Um, but I think you can see in the editorial choices, I mean, you know, even just like kind of our soft sections, the style section or the food section or whatever, you know, there's a lot of stories about, you know, feminist women and gay couples and single women. And, you know, it looks different than Christianity today. It just does. You know, every place has its own culture. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Hi, my name's uh, Julia Ogilvie. I'm a British student here at HDS. Um, and I feel that we've got a lot of the same issues you're talking about um, mm. with the British media, and particularly the loss of religious journalists. Um, and I'm really just curious to know if you have a view, actually, of British um, media reporting on religion. Uh, we have a very media-friendly Archbishop of Canterbury now, mm -hmm. which has, right. I think, changed things a bit. Um, but I just wondered about your view and if there's anyone you particularly admire there writing about religion. Uh, I'm drawing a blank. Yeah. Uh, there was someone and she's not, she's now in the, in the religious press. So, I'm not, you know, during the Anglican Wars, um, over, <laughs> which, which were, uh, you know, when, when it, there was discussions about whether the Anglican communion might split over the ordination of gay clergy and uh, gay marriages, and that was very active in like the, you know, 10, 10, 12 years ago, I did follow the British press a lot more closely than I do now. I still probably should. Okay, what, should we, what, one more, is that, yeah? One more, one more question. Okay, mm-hmm, who gets it? Hi, I'm Jessica Morgenthal. I'm also a student of Dr. Moore's. Uh, my question is, we've been talking primarily about religion, articles purely about religion and being covered by journalists who cover religion. There's so much religion embedded in non-directly religious news. How do we raise the religious literacy level and um, responsibility to cover religion professionally by the rest of the media? Well, I don't have the answer. I'm very sorry. Um, but that was my suggestion about having somebody in newsrooms who could be a, a point person. You're right. There is so much religion. There are actually very few stories you know, that are explicitly about religion. It's usually the intersection. It's religion and politics. It's religion and education, you know, schools. Religion and sports, you know. Um, and look, good reporters on any of those beats will do their job on the religion piece of what they're writing about, just as, you know, education or foreign policy or, you know, sports. Um, and I've seen that. I have to say, I think the New York Times does that every day. We have great stories about religion every day that are not by me. Um, and, uh, and you never know what section they're going to crop up in. So I, you know, I would just say that good reporters you know, do that. And sometimes I get calls from those you know, reporters saying, who do I talk to? I'm doing a story on, you know, and I need a religion piece. Um, but you know, to, to up the literacy, religious literacy, of every reporter on every beat, I, I, you know, I'm, I don't see how, how it's possible. Um, I think there can be you know, awareness raising. Um, I think 
I actually think that a Trump administration is going to have an impact on this because there are going to be a lot of stories that are religion inflected because of the people he is putting in his cabinet, because of a Republican dominated Congress. I think we are going to see um, religion stories all over the place. That's why anybody who ever said the culture wars are over, the religious right is dead, I never wrote those stories. I don't believe that. Um, so maybe, you know, because we're going to be hearing so much of that, there'll be some more awareness that we need this. We need to do this better. Um, but anyway, I think that's a great way to end this because hopefully over the next 24 hours, we are going to come up with the answer. So, <laughs> all right, thank you very much. Thank you.